Welcome back to the NYC Young Politicos podcast. I'm Leo Greenberg. And I'm Aton Sanger. Today, we are excited to be joined by Congressman Richie Torres, who represents New York's 15th Congressional District. Elected at 25 to the City Council of New York, Congressman Torres remains one of the youngest members of Congress today, and he has received significant attention for his focus on public housing, the U.S. relationship with Israel, um, and many other issues, including re- most recently being cited by the Speaker of the House, um, Nancy Pelosi, were saying that the movement to defund the police uh, was dead and that it should never be something represented by members of the Democratic Party. Uh, Congressman Torres, thanks so much for joining the New York City Young Politicos podcast today. Happy to be here. Uh, so, Congressman Torres, I want to start with um, something that I think has really dominated the last year, the last few years in Washington, which is the polarization in Congress and even sometimes within the Democratic Party. I remember hearing last year that um, Max Rose uh, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who come from very different wings uh, of the Democratic Party, actually had a very friendly relationship and that Max Rose um, called Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez Alex. Um, So I wanted to ask you about uh, your relationship with the other members from New York, um, because there is a wide range in viewpoints. You have Jamal Bowman and um, AOC, you have Mondaire Jones, um, and then you have many older members and even Republicans like Nicole Maliotakis. So can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what it's been like to work with these people um, and your personal relationships with them and how you kind of work through your policy differences while still being close colleagues? Well, I have a cordial relationship with, with every one of my colleagues. Some relationships are closer than others. Um, but you know, those of us in the 117th Congress are at a disadvantage. You know, we entered Congress in the midst of an infectious disease outbreak. And so we were deprived of the opportunity to see our colleagues in person, to break bread with them over dinner, to build deep and durable relationships in the most formative period of our political career. So my experience has put me at a disadvantage when it comes to relationship building. I've had far less interaction with the members of my class than previous Congresses have had. We have a difference about along political lines and along backgrounds, but you also have this big difference about ages. And as we mentioned, Right. You when you were elected to the council, you were the youngest member at the time at 25, uh, only a few years older than Leo and myself. And which is very appropriate for us. Right. We're the NYC Young Politicals podcast talking about like what was that first of all, that experience like about getting elected at such a young age? Like, how did you decide to run when you're just only 25? And then now when you're like some of the young, you're among the youngest members of Congress. What has that experience been like? How have you found um, it useful and in terms of your youth and also effective in sort of making change, even though some of your colleagues and in leadership positions and elsewhere are significantly older and sort of, do you think there's a need to get more younger uh, people like you um, and change the leadership up a bit in terms of the ages and that whole experience? Well, politics at every level of government would certainly benefit from an infusion of new energy and new leadership. Uh, I, I first ran for public office when I was 24, which at first was a terrifying experience. And I had a fear of public speaking. It's often said that the fear of public speaking is greater than the fear of death. And I was so anxious about speaking in public, so anxious about knocking on doors that I would drink a glass of wine before every speech in order to put my nerves at ease. Um, and I originally thought 
that my youth would be a liability. And I came to realize that when I was knocking on doors, people saw my youth as a symbol of change. People saw in me a representation of a new generation of leadership. So in the course of my first city council campaign, I came to realize that my youth was, was an advantage. And, you know, in a, in a, in a, I ran in Council District 15, the Central Bronx. And in the Central Bronx, there are about 160,000 people in a council district. Maybe 60,000 are registered Dems, but only 6,000 actually vote. And I said to myself, I'm young and energetic. I can knock on 6,000 doors. And so every night I would knock on doors and it is the most powerful form of voter contact. There are people who approach me on the street today who say you knocked on my door eight years ago. It, it leaves an, uh, a permanent impression on the minds of your constituents. You know, several people would tell me in the 40 years I've been living in the Bronx, I've never had a candidate for public office or a public official knock on my door. And I won my first city council campaign on the strength of door-to-door -door campaigning. I became the youngest elected official in the city of New York at age 25. And I jokingly say that the, the seat, the council district 15 seat, it for a long time was the baby seat of the New York City Council because my predecessor, Joel Rivera, was the youngest person ever to be elected to the city council. He was elected at age 21 or 22. Uh, and then my successor for a brief period was the youngest member of the New York City Council. So council district 15, the central Bronx, has a long tradition of, of electing young people. And it's true of the Bronx in general. You know, Ruben Diaz Jr. Uh, was the youngest member of the assembly since Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, so young leadership is encoded in the DNA of the Bronx. And talking about young elected leaders from the Bronx, I mean, the congressional delegation um, that represents the Bronx has changed so much in the past few years. Just a few years ago, you had, uh, Congressman Elliot Engel, you had uh, uh, Joe Crowley, you had Jose Serrano, you had Nita Lowy, and now um, all, basically all of those seats are held by people decades younger than their predecessors. So I wonder, have you seen, um, and in your conversations with House leadership, um, or just kind of this delegation being young and, and all being first or second term representatives, how has that dynamic played out? And do you feel like um, the House leadership, which is mostly of that, older generation, um, have they been very responsive and engaging or do you ever feel like there's kind of an attitude of knowing your place or of uh, a very high premium put on seniority? How has is, how is that felt for you and um, for the other young representatives of, of the Bronx? Well, Congress has a strong bias towards seniority. Uh, and if you're a young member, if you're a fresh member, you have to assert yourself uh, in order to have an impact. Um, you know, one of my colleagues made the observation that all but two of the committee chairs selected by the House Democratic Caucus are at and above the age of 70. Uh, the leaders of the Democratic Caucus, the three, three top leaders, are all above the age of 80. Uh, there's a story about uh, Richie Neal, who's the chair of the Ways and Means. I heard a story once where he became the chair of Ways and Means at age 69. And a friend of his jokingly said, wow, Richie, now you have your whole career ahead of you. So, you know, Congress is a gerontocracy uh, and it has a strong bias towards seniority. And if you're a young member of Congress, 
you have to assert yourself in order to make your presence known, in order to have an impact in moving legislation that benefits your district, that benefits the people you represent. Uh, it can be brutal toward freshmen. And on the topic of sort of younger voters, right, younger, younger people in office, there's this whole question about do people like Leo and myself who are just first year voters, right, I just turned 18 recently, I'm registering to vote, haven't voted yet, do people like us really turn out in elections? And right, you have this interesting perspective of being closer in age to be to um, first time, second time, and people who are in college voters. What have you sort of seen about their engagement in po uh, politics, both local, national, and um, willingness and desire to turn out to vote? And how do you think, like members of Congress, ranging from yourself to sort of sort of the older leadership, uh, older members of leadership, further engage younger voters and bring them out to vote to make sure that they're helping the Democratic Party in the midterms? Well, there's a lack of voter participation among young people. You know, Ezra Klein once described the federal government as an insurance firm with an army because the three largest budget items are Medicare, Social Security, and the defense budget. And Medicare and Social Security primarily benefit senior citizens. Two-thirds of this federal government's budget is oriented towards senior citizens. And the reason is simple, senior citizens vote. Uh, and so when you vote, you have a larger seat at the table. You have a greater share of the federal budget. A wise person once said, if you, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. And instead of having a seat at the table, young people are on the menu and we have to change that. You know, if, if, if we could mobilize young people to vote in much greater numbers, uh, the Democrats would have a much more durable majority in Washington, DC. We would win elections much more decisively than we've done. You know, it's um, certainly true that there is a large number of issues where it feels like young people are on the side of the Democrats or they're on the side kind of of the progressive cause like climate change or voting rights. One issue where that doesn't really feel like it's the case, so and an issue that I know you focused on a lot and is also of um, great importance to Aton and I is America's relationship with Israel. And there's been a lot of polling and media coverage about how among the younger generations, there is this shift that's far more skeptical of our relationship with Israel or believes in the U.S.-Israel relationship as an institution less than previous generations. And so, I mean, one thing that's always kind of fascinated me about you, Congressman, is that um, you're not personally Jewish. Uh, until recently, you didn't have very many Jewish constituents. Um, and especially as a young Democrat, it's getting far harder to be vocally pro-Israel um, without incurring just immense vitriol online. So can you talk about what it's like being pro-Israel in your generation and what it's like not just um, voting for the strengthening of the U.S.-Israel relationship, but really uh, being vocal about it and, and what, that kind, what you see your role as as a young person who is kind of, I think, in some ways going against the grain on that issue? For me, the progressive position is a two-state solution. The progressive outcome is the coexistence of a Jewish state and a Palestinian state rather than the existence of one to the exclusion of the other. Um, it is fair game to be critical of every country, including Israel. It is fair game to be critical of a country's policies and practices and political personalities. 
Um, but what is often directed against Israel is not criticism, it's extremism, right? When you question Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, you're not merely expressing a criticism, you're engaging in extremism. You know, people who were critical of America's decision to go to war with Iraq, uh, none of those people ever question the right of the United States to exist. Uh, so it seems to me that Israel is held to a double standard to which no other country in the world is held. And, you know, when you see extremism, you have an obligation to speak out against it. People find it strange that I, as a person who neither represents a significant Jewish community nor is Jewish himself, you know, why do I care so much about anti-Semitism? I disagree with the premise of the question. One need not be Jewish to fight anti-Semitism, just like one need not be Black to fight anti-Black racism. We're all in this together. Dr. Martin Luther King spoke about the moral interconnectedness of our common humanity. And we all have an obligation to ensure that extremism is fought no matter what form it takes and no matter what direction from which it comes. You know, there are those on the left who only speak out against anti-Semitism from the right. There are those on the right who only speak out against anti-Semitism from the left. I speak out forcefully against both because that's the position of integrity. Why do you think there has sort of been this shift? If you look back probably a few decades ago, the issue of Israel would probably not be one which is so divisive amongst the Democratic, the Democratic Party, right? There are always voices who differed on that issue, but probably much more, much more universal pro-Israel view. So what do you think has sort of led to this shift? Do you think it's um, social media? Do you think it's other factors? And what do you think can be done to combat this rise in both anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiments or support of the BDS movement, which we are seeing. So what do you think has led to this shift that we have seen in recent years and months? And what can sort of be done to combat it? Uh, the, the extremism against Israel is a testament to the success of the BDS movement. Um, the BDS movement has a strong foothold on college campuses. Uh, when people ask me why am I so pro-Israel, I jokingly tell them that I dropped out of college. Uh, so I was never indoctrinated with a hatred for Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, but, but the ideas of the BDS movement have been percolating for a long time in academia, on college campuses. And social media has enabled those ideas to penetrate into the broader society. And we saw that dynamic play out in May of 2021, during the conflict between Hamas and Israel. Um, you know, what frustrates me is there are young people who are rushing to judgment against Israel without actually knowing the facts, without knowing the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, instead of thinking critically, these young people are often uncritically retweeting rhetoric that refers to Israel as an apartheid state or falsely accuses Israel of genocide, ethnic cleansing. You know, I'm reminded of a exchange that the vice president had with a college student. There was a college student who casually accused Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinians, which is absurd. You know, within Israel, within the 1967 borders, the Palestinian population, the Arab population has risen from somewhere in the range of 150,000 to 2 million. 
And then in general, the Palestinian population has risen to a historic high of 14 million, right? If there were genocide against the Palestinians, one would expect a downward trend in the population. One would expect depopulation, right? So it's, it's a, a, the notion, the accusation of genocide to me is a blood libel against Israel as a Jewish state. But it's, it's, it's an accusation that I have found young people repeat without actually knowing the facts, without actually knowing the historical context. And, 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 and we live in a world where the truth no longer matters. People are operating increasingly on tweets and hashtags and memes and infographics. And that's what passes for knowledge in our present society. So much of that rings true for me that the truth is just drowned out by the vitriol or the oversimplifications on social media. Um, it seems to me that this topic has been incredibly frustrating to deal with in the past few years, but I've seen a few kind of glimmers of hope. I think that the increase in anti-Semitic crime, as awful as it's been, has put a bit more of a spotlight on combating anti-Semitism. And I also think um, on the issue of Israel, it's felt to me, at least somewhat, that the replacement of the Netanyahu government with a broader, diverse coalition that includes Israeli Arabs has made it easier to, for some American young people to relate with or connect with Israel uh, in some ways. And I'm wondering, has, has, have either of those things among the young people you speak with, among uh, your colleagues in the house, have you noticed a shift in response to uh, the awareness around anti-Semitism or the new Israeli government? Or um, has, it, has that too been drowned out by the oversimplifications and, and generalizations? I am, it's not clear that I share your optimism, but I agree with your criticism of Netanyahu. He was a profoundly polarizing figure. I thought Netanyahu polarized and politicized the issue of Israel to an extent never seen before. It was clear to me that he was pursuing a one party strategy, which to me came at grave cost to the historical bipartisanship of, of the American-Israeli relationship. Um, and he had a radicalizing effect on, on progressive politics in relation to Israel. Uh, so I thought he did an immense disservice to his own country. Right, we mentioned earlier in the conversation about now you'll be representing Riverdale. Up until now, my congressional district, um, which I live in Riverdale, so that's the uh, 16th congressional district represented by Jamal Bowman, who just two years ago, uh, defeated um, Elliot Engel in the primary, we will now be represented by you. Um, and what's so interesting is that right now you represent basically the South Bronx, which is, if I understand correctly, one of the poorest districts in the whole nation. And now you will be getting in Riverdale, which is, I'd say, a bit wealthier than some of those poor parts of the Bronx. How will you sort of balance, right? Your job as a representative, you're supposed to represent the views and feelings and desires of your constituents, no matter where they live and no matter how wealthy they are? How are like, you gonna sort of balance this difference between the people living in Riverdale and the people living in these other areas of the South Bronx and what they want and what they sort of need for them and their life? Well, keep in mind, there's nothing unusual about a congressional district with a diversity of neighborhoods. I mean, congressional districts represent 
700 to 800,000 people, which encompasses a wide range of neighborhoods. But you're right, the new Congressional District 15, which is essentially the South Bronx or Riverdale, will, will essentially be a tale of two cities. In the South Bronx is among the poorest geographic areas in the country. Riverdale is among the wealthiest. Um, but I feel I'm uniquely positioned to represent both neighborhoods effectively. You know, I care deeply about issues relating to racially concentrated poverty, whether it's creating safeties and affordable housing or closing the digital divide or expanding access to financial services for the unbanked and underbanked um, or expanding access to quality education, right? Those are issues that are core to who I am that inspired me to run for public office in the first place. Uh, and those are issues that matter enormously to the South Bronx. But I also have been outspoken against anti-Semitism and outspoken in favor of the American-Israeli relationship. And I know that matters to enormously in Riverdale. Uh, so I feel like I, I champion causes that reflect the beliefs and values of, of, these, of these radically different neighborhoods that might have more in common than we think. And I hope to be a bridge between the South Bronx and Riverdale. And I will state that you know when, when the fire at Twin Parks Northwest broke out, um, there was a real effort by many in Riverdale to contribute uh, to the families who lost everything from the fire. So uh, I think what binds us together in the end is our common humanity. One of the issues I wonder about uh, that I think probably has to be seen differently among the residents of Riverdale and the residents of the South Bronx, and one that's been in the news immensely recently is public safety. Um, and you made some news a few days ago when Speaker Pelosi, in an interview with George Stephanopoulos, referenced you for saying that the defund the police movement was basically dead. I think this is an issue the whole Democratic Party is struggling with, and I think there are a lot of divides within the party. Um, you have people like Eric Adams, who's a former police officer that wants to really tackle the rise in violent crime. And you still have the spirit of 2020 and the George Floyd protests pushing for police reform and a move towards racial justice issues. So in balancing this for your district and balancing this with, within the Democratic Party, where do you look for how to strike the right balance? Do you think Mayor Adams is, is getting it right? Do you think... Um, that House Democratic leadership is getting it right where, how do you see that issue? There is more broad agreement than you would think. There's less division than you would think. There, there is a visible vocal minority on Twitter that certainly favors abolishing or defunding the police. But the overwhelming majority of Democrats in both the South Bronx and Riverdale are in favor of reforming rather than abolishing or even defunding the police. What most Democrats want is neither over-policing nor under-policing, but better policing, more accountable and more transparent and more constitutional policing, right? That to me is not only my position, but it's the position that best expresses uh, the values of most Democrats. So I, there's less of a divide between Riverdale and the South Bronx from the subject of public safety than you would think. I think every family simply wants to be safe. And the police play an important role in keeping us all safe. It's not the only solution. Like we have to have a strategy for diverting young people who are at risk of joining gangs. We have to divert them away from gang membership and gang violence. 
but there's no denying the central role that police play in public safety. And the notion of abolishing the police in the midst of an outbreak of gun violence strikes me as profoundly irresponsible. And just quickly, since we are, we, since we do have to wrap up, Mayor Adams has been in office now for just over a month. Governor Hochul took office back in August. Since we are the NYC Young Politicals podcast, what do you, in just a couple sentences, what do you think about their performances and their decisions so far? And what do you think they can do better or continue doing for the next uh, year or so? I think well of both Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams. And it is refreshing to see a normal relationship between the mayor and the governor. Uh, The state and city of New York were poorly served by the psychotic psychodrama between Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. And I'm happy to see the worst of that behind us. So I know you have to jump off soon, Congressman Torres, but um, for our audience, which does include a lot of new voters and high schoolers, um, some college students as well, do you have a message about how to navigate the very strange political moment that we're in coming out of a pandemic, dealing with intense polarization, um, social media. What have you found? You're one of the people we've interviewed that's closest to our generation um, and that has navigated some of the, I think, a lot of similar struggles to us. Is there any piece of advice or encouragement that you can give to young people who have a real interest with politics, but also have frustrations or concerns about the current moment? Well, I have an Uncle Sam message, we need you. Um, and never allow your cynicism to become an excuse for political disengagement. Like we need young people to be d- engaged because young people have the greatest stake in the future. You're going to have to live with the consequences of decisions made at every level of government and you should have a stake in those decisions and you should have a stake in who's making those decisions. Uh, So I would encourage young people to be civically engaged, to understand that leadership has no age. I got my start in politics at age 16. There are people who've been engaged in politics younger than I am. And we need you because if you do not care enough about your own future to be engaged in politics, then no one else will. There's no substitute for young leadership. It's a cliche, but it's true. Young people represent the future. Um, And with that, we'd like to thank Congressman Torres. Thank you so much for joining us on the NYC Young Political Podcast today. Happy to be Um, here. and Thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much. Um, And with that, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to to this week's episode of the NYC Young Political Podcast. Please, as usual, subscribe, share, and stay tuned for future episodes. Thanks so much.